0: think of the gospel as something that's very, like, individual. Like, when you think of the gospel, you think of my salvation, my righteousness, like, my, or my declared righteousness, I should say. It's my eternal life, right? That's a pretty common thing, right? You think about the gospel in terms of the personal effect that it has on you, and that's, and that's totally fine. That's a totally appropriate thing to think. But the gospel goes far beyond that. The gospel that Jesus came preaching in Mark 1 was the gospel of the kingdom, it wasn't just about individual Christians being saved, and it wasn't even about just a people being saved, but it was about God's reign and rule over all creation. It's the gospel of the kingdom. So today, as we open our Bibles to Mark 4, 30 through 34, if you want to start flipping there now, um, we're going to explore the idea of the kingdom a little bit. In this passage, Jesus talks about the kingdom in terms of a mustard seed. We're gonna see what that means and, and try to understand what that means for us as we move forward. So why don't you guys stand with me as we read uh, Mark 4, 30 through 34? Stand if you're able, I should say. It's okay if you if you're not. Um I haven't explained this in a while. The reason we stand for the reading of God's Word is to to show the respect that we have for God's Word, right? Like we we can sit While a man is speaking, but when God speaks, we stand. So, Mark 4 30 through 34 says this, and he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet, When it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord God, I pray that you would help us to understand your wisdom in comparing the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. I pray that you would help us to see the consistency with, with which you use the small mundane things to confound the wise and make them glorious for your purposes, for your glory. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to live in the hope of the kingdom that, Lord, your kingdom might come and you might set up your direct rule over all people and all creation. And, Lord God, I pray that you would help us as a church to not only live as if that was true, but, Lord, even to live as if that was true right here, right now, so that, Lord, as the church, we can pull back the curtain on the kingdom of heaven so that we and others might see what it is, what it's all about, the kingdom. Lord God, we thank you for this. We pray that you would... Bless this time. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. One of my favorite kinds of story is the plot twist. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Like Interstellar, you ever seen that movie? Or Inception. Um, Ashley said that most people wouldn't get this, but there's a, there's a, a Brad Pitt movie The the first rule is you don't talk about it. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. The rest of you, it's okay. You don't have to watch that movie. It's not that great. It's actually pretty good, but I shouldn't say that as a pastor probably. I saw it way back in the day. Um, Before I was more sanctified. (laughs) Um, Man, I love the plot twist, right? Like... You go into this story, and they tell you this whole thing one way, and then all of a sudden, something comes out of nowhere and just blindsides you. And I love the plot twists that are actually like kind of seeded beforehand. You should have seen it coming, and where like, when the plot twist hits, it's like, oh, man, i got to go back and rewatch this whole thing so that I can watch it with a new perspective. I can read this story with a whole new perspective, Right? I love it when when the author just goes, "Hey, like actually all those other things that I told you about were something completely different." See, I'm not talking about the the kind of big reveal like in The Empire Strikes Back, right? "No, I'm your father," right? That's just that's just a that's a plot twist, but it's not the kind that's going to make you rethink the entire narrative. There wasn't that much character development for Vader. But the kind of thing that I'm talking about is, man, like They've dropped this, this this bomb at the end, and I have to go back to the beginning and go, like, my mind is just completely twisted. I have no idea what's going on here, but I'm going to see this with a completely different perspective. In the first century, the Jews expected a Messiah, but they had certain preconceived notions about what sort of Messiah they might have and what he might do and what kind of kingdom he might set up. In fact, Even after Jesus' resurrection in Acts 1.6, the disciples seemed to expect him to remove the Roman government, their oppressors, and and set up an earthly kingdom in Israel right then and there. He was gonna take it by force. They were like, Oh, you're you've you are you have you have been raised from the grave. Is now the time for the kingdom? And then he ascends into heaven. Kind of blew their minds. But Jesus had been telling them about this this whole time. In fact, God has been telling us that he uses the small things to confound the wise this whole time. See, this, this text that we just read, Jesus, as Jesus explains the nature of the kingdom, it would have been really counterintuitive to the first century Jew. The, the idea that the kingdom of heaven might be compared to a mustard seed was ludicrous. In fact, it was a, a common uh, sort of proverb to call something that was insignificant or without purpose or, or small and, and ordinary a mustard seed. I mean, do you know how big a mustard seed is? I mean, the kids probably do. They've got their coloring sheets out. They've got a little thing on there that shows you how big a mustard seed. In fact, we couldn't get the dot small enough. So it's very, very small. It's a speck of dirt. And at first, that sort of idea, oh, the, the kingdom of God is a... It's a mustard seed? It seems like a terrible plot twist, right? Like, it came out of nowhere, you'd think. Like, this doesn't make any sense. The Jews expected one thing, and, and this, this other thing happened. And, you know, maybe they didn't think, well, God had been foreshadowing this the entire time throughout redemptive history. But before we get into the kingdom itself, I want to show you that God has been actually very consistent in using the small, mundane, and ordinary things for his glorious purposes, See, the, kingdom of, the idea that the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a mustard seed is actually completely consistent with how God has always operated throughout redemptive history. See, he doesn't work according to human wisdom. In fact, he works counter to human wisdom often. Perhaps the first instance of this that we see in scripture is the act of creation itself. In Genesis 2-7, God creates Man. In, in fact, if you go before that, on the sixth day, he, he, sa- he says, amongst himself, which is a cool thing you get to say when you're a Trinitarian. He says, let us make God in our own image. Or make, make man in our own image, sorry. And then he goes on in Genesis 2-7 to explain how he did that. It says, then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. What's important about that What did he use? Did he use gold, silver, precious metals? Did he use diamonds? Did he use something that's incredibly valuable to the human mind? No, he used the dust, the dirt that was left over from all of his other good works in creation. He used all of that stuff, the worthless stuff that was left over after he created everything else to create his the the highest level of creature, to create the mankind which was made in his image. He used the dirt from the ground. I mean, honestly, that in and of itself should be a dead giveaway that Jesus should be able to compare the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. But, as if we needed more evidence, later on in the book of Genesis, God chose Jacob to be the patriarch of the Israelite nation. You might think, oh, he he must have had something about him, right? That that made God favor him over his brother, right? Something. It's got to be... You know, position, right? He, maybe he had position or power in his, you know, in his family. That's why God chose him. No, no, no. Jacob was the second-born son. He had no birthright, no position, no power. He had nothing. In fact, by all rights, Esau should have been made the father of the nation of Israel. He was the firstborn. He had the birthright, at least until he gave it away to Jacob. But God had predestined to use Jacob, the second-born son, to accomplish his highest glory. He used that which was lowly for his glorious purposes. Romans 9 sums it up like this. It says, though they, that is Jacob and Esau, were not born yet and had done nothing good, either good or bad, In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, that is their mother, was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. He chose the small thing. What about David, though, right? Go on further in the in the story. What about David? Obviously, there had to have been something special about David. I mean, he was made the king over over all of Israel. He was, in fact, the greatest king that Israel would ever see until Jesus. There had to be something special about him, right? I mean, he was the greatest king. He was God's chosen man. But the fact is that David wasn't all that special. I mean, except for the fact that he was relatively good looking that's what it says in the scriptures i mean that's a paraphrase but it's there there's really nothing extraordinary about him in fact he was so ordinary and so low born that his father didn't even think it was necessary to bring him out before the prophet when it was time to choose a new king the prophet came to him and said and said, hey like give me like show me all of your sons god has told me that one of your sons is going to be the next king of israel i'm going to anoint him today Bring them all out here. He brings all but one out. And and Sam was like, Where what's going on? Do you have another son? And he's like, Oh yeah, we got this run of the litter that we left out back because he's the last born and like and he doesn't really matter all that much. He left we, we left him to tend the sheep. But God chose him to accomplish his glorious ends. I mean, further into David's story, even like we see that God uses a lowly river rock, to slay the giant named Goliath. I mean, Saul gave David all of this, armor, his sword, everything else that he would need to go into battle against Goliath, but God said, no, I'm going to use the small, mundane, ordinary things for my good purposes. By man's wisdom, these things are completely absurd but God uses that which is lowly and insignificant in order to display his glory and holiness more clearly. I mean, do you think you or I would be sitting here having been saved by grace and welcomed into the family of God if he only used people that seemed worthy? (laughs) I mean, I know I wouldn't be. I mean, maybe you guys are are stronger, smarter, faster, more talented than I am. Maybe if God was trying to find the best and the brightest of all of humanity to bring him glory, man, you'd be among them. Maybe. But I don't know. If if you're me, if you're like me, there's just too much broken, messed up, deficient stuff inside me. I'm not good enough to be chosen by God. He's operating by man's wisdom. But God consistently uses these small, insignificant, broken and mundane things and people like me in order to show the world how wonderful, merciful and gracious he is. So let me get the the record straight before we move on today to the reality of the kingdom. So I really want you to see that God Comparing his kingdom to a mustard seed is, is not crazy. But let me, let me set the record straight here before we get too far. I'm going to talk a little bit individually. I talked about individual salvation. If you ever thought that God elected you to eternal life because he saw something great in you, you're dead wrong. In fact, it's far more likely that God chose you because of how messed up you are and how much it would bring him glory to put you back together. On the other side of that coin, though, I mean, you need to hear this. If you think that you're too messed up, too deficient, too plain, just plain wretched, that God could ever use you, you couldn't be further from the truth. If God can use a second-born son like Jacob or a runt of the litter like David, or a genocidal murderer like Paul, then there's no question that he can use you. There's no question that he can use this small, ordinary, run-of-the-mill church. God uses the small things. And the people that this world seems to identify as worthless for his highest and most glorious purposes. In light of that, that reality, it's easy then to see how consistent it would be for Jesus to compare the kingdom of heaven to a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed because in the beginning it looks small and insignificant. The, the Jews expected to, that their Messiah would come with armies and fiery chariots and angels and all sorts of crazy things. But Jesus came as a baby in a manger, lived peacefully and died quietly. He was the seed of the kingdom of heaven. He was sown by dying on the cross. I mean, God could have, could have done things so differently, Right? I mean, let's just be like completely honest right now. Like if we were going to devise a scheme by which to set up God's kingdom on earth, we probably wouldn't choose this way, right? Maybe he, he could have uh, done what the Jews expected and just, you know, came in and, and taken everything by force right then and there. You know, maybe he, he could have waited until the 21st century and just blasted it across the internet. Maybe, you know, he could have come right after David and saved the Jews, all sorts of terrible, evil kings. But he didn't. He chose to use his only son, Jesus Christ. I mean, I don't think any of us would have ever come up with a first century Jewish rabbi dying on a Roman cross as a way to set up the kingdom of God. I'm not sure that we'd ever get there. And yet that's precisely how the kingdom of God began. The seed was sown, Jesus died on the cross, and like a mustard seed, the kingdom began to grow. And the promise here is clear in verse 32 today. When it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. In fact, the mustard seed grows up to be larger than any other plant. Hear that. Matthew actually quotes Jesus as saying, the mustard seed grows up into a tree. Something so large compared to all the other garden plants that would eclipse them all. Likewise, the kingdom of God will grow into into a mustard plant, as it were, and eclipse every human kingdom that has ever existed or will exist. The most powerful rulers will seem powerless compared to God in his kingdom. The biggest countries will seem small in comparison to God's direct rule over all creation. The most just and righteous kings and the presidents will seem evil in comparison to God's righteous judgment. And the most benevolent governments will seem malevolent compared to God's merciful reign that's the kingdom of God. Like a mustard tree which grows from the smallest seed to the largest plant in the garden, the kingdom of God will wreck our perspectives on what a government should be because it's so good. Like I said before, far too often we think of the gospel as something that's highly individual. Like I said, that's somewhat justified. You know, it's about my relationship with God. It's about my salvation, my glorification. But the gospel that Jesus preached was the gospel of the kingdom. It was the good news that God's kingdom would come in and that God would reign and rule over his people directly. The good news isn't just that we're saved from eternal punishment. It's that we are saved into the kingdom of God and we have the promise that that kingdom will never end. That's the promise that Jesus is making in this parable. And you might not see it all clearly right now. You might not see his kingdom super clearly right now. But God's kingdom is coming, and no one will be able to ignore it. As Christians, we must live with that sort of perspective. The idea that the kingdom is coming when the federal government doesn't solve all of your problems, it's not time for despair. It's time for hope because it points us to God's kingdom. It's coming. There will be a, a day when all of this small, this, this stuff that's happening today, even the terrible things that happen today will seem small in comparison to the light of God's glory. I mean, Why would we ever expect a human government to do what only God can do perfectly? I mean, by all means, look, I'm saying call your senators, vote, lobby, do everything else that you can to make life better for everyone, okay? I'm not saying we don't care about these things. But if you're praying for the U.S. government harder than you're praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then you need to check your priorities, Pray for our leaders, okay? But don't place your hope in them. Place your hope in the kingdom of God, which is coming. Pray that God would set up his kingdom in this world. Where is your hope today? Are you hoping that someone is going to come in and fix all of the bad stuff in the world? I mean, if if God should see fit to, to sanctify the U.S. government and make this this nation, truly Christian, perhaps even for the first time, depending on where you come from history-wise, then we should praise him for his mercy, but we shouldn't hope in that. We should hope for his kingdom because it's going to be far, far better. And if God sees fit to let this country go straight into the darkness it's headed toward right now, then we should pray and live with confidence that Jesus is coming back and all of these things will fade in light of his glory. To should pray for the kingdom. No matter our circumstances, our hope is not simply that God will raise up some human leader to deal with all the evil in the world. Our hope is that Jesus Christ will return and inaugurate the kingdom of God fully and completely in the new heavens and new earth. That's our hope. That's the gospel of the kingdom. As Christians, we are not people who live without hope. We hope in Christ not only for eternal life but for the kingdom that he promised where we will live under his perfect reign and it's as good as done. But we live in an in-between time, right? The kingdom of God isn't simply a seed waiting to be sown. That's already happened at the cross. But the kingdom isn't quite here in all of its glory yet, is it? Passages like Hebrews 2.8-9 testify to this sort of already-but-not-yet reality. We, we know that God the Father has subjected all things under Jesus, and yet at the same time, we don't fully see it just yet, do we? But the whole thing is as good as done. And as people who have placed their faith in Jesus, we have to live like we actually trust him. Like the kingdom is real. I mean, practically, we do this through the church. As we live with Christ, our king, particularly as we worship and do life together as brothers and sisters in Christ, we sort of pull back the curtain on the kingdom of heaven so that we and others can see what the kingdom is finally going to be like. Yes, it's a dim picture, don't get me wrong. We still deal with sin and brokenness. But as Christians, we're already living in the kingdom. Some would say we live in two kings, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. People who are outside of Christ live simply in the kingdom of man. People who are in Christ live in both the kingdom of man, that's human governments, and the kingdom of God where God rules and reigns over his people perfectly and completely right here and now. Look, I mean, like I said, the the church is is supposed to be an image of this. But I realize that this dance studio doesn't look much like heaven. Or if it does, I'm I'm getting really worried. (laughs) But the people around you right now are the ones you're going to spend eternity with. I mean, I know that you can't see the presence of God here and now like you will in heaven. But he's here nonetheless. It says, when two or three are gathered in his name, there he is. If our hope is really in Christ, then, and, and he's certainly going to bring the, the kingdom of God in all of its fullness, then we need to start worshiping, living, and fellowshipping like we believe it. Sing like you're going to sing when you see Jesus on the throne with your own eyes. Pray like you're going to pray when you see him face to face. Love others like you're going to love them in eternity. In the process of, uh, of writing this, or any sermon, it's, it's really a pastor's job to not only ask what the text means, right, but to ask what God is saying to this congregation here and now. And I, I admit that like, this is probably a, a place where I struggle the most when preparing a sermon. It you know, asking, you know, what does the text mean can be a, a mostly academic exercise, right? But asking the question like, what does this need to say to your people right now, Lord? That's that's the that's the harder bit, I think. But I think that this passage is pretty clear for us today. A few things that God wants you to know today from this passage. First, God wants you to know that he can use each of you in particular, and this church corporately, no matter our relative size or strength. He uses the small and weak things to do great and mighty things. If you're in Christ, then no matter your background or your brokenness, God is able to work in and through you. Look, your life and this church mean something if you're in Christ. Do you hear me today? It means something. You might seem small, but God can work in you for his glorious purposes. That is the highest calling that we can possibly have. And this isn't just a past pattern of God using small things. We get to hope in the gospel of the kingdom, which started small, just a small seed. Jesus Christ and is blossoming into something so much bigger. So often, again, we think as, of something as the gospel is something that's individual, but the good news for you is also the good news of the kingdom. It's coming. That gives us hope. God wants to, you to hear today that you have hope, not just in your personal salvation, but in his kingdom coming. Finally, God wants you to know that the gospel of the kingdom should drive us to live as if we're already there. If we really trust God, we trust his promises. We should love God and our neighbor just like we will in eternity. So let's pray, sing, and fellowship with more joy, more conviction, and more love than ever before. In due time, the kingdom of God will break in, but we won't be surprised at what it looks like if we're living like that. Yes, it will be far more glorious and splendid and more amazing than we might imagine here and now, but the shape of it is going to be familiar because we're already living it here on earth with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Today, God wants you to know that no matter how small and far off it may seem now, the kingdom is coming and everything will be made new. If we weren't in Christ today, man, that might seem terrifying, and it should. God is coming in perfect judgment for sin. He is the God of the universe who controls all things and who judges perfectly for every sin. There is no escaping his wrath except by Jesus Christ, who has paid the price for all of our sin. But if you do trust in Christ today, man, the good news of God's kingdom is truly gospel. It gives us hope. So let that knowledge fill you and fuel you as you live and hope for that day. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.